Hey, In Her Element podcast listeners, do you want to be a strategic player in politics? Then we want to tell you about Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that takes big ideas from civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for all of us. Mila Atmos is passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. Join her on her show as she zeroes in on what you can do to get engaged and stay engaged. Every Thursday, she talks to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your ability to change the status quo. Find the show at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's so easy to look at somebody like myself and their resume and think, wow, what a set of accomplishments. They must have had an amazing master plan. I don't know if I could ever do that. And I'm here to say there was no master plan. This is In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Suchi Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. This week, we're speaking with Yvonne Wassenaar, former CEO of Airware and Puppet. Now, Yvonne spends her time advising on a number of company boards, helping them to drive diversity and impact from the very top. Yvonne is extremely candid about the challenges she's faced throughout her life. Things didn't always go to plan, and she's had to make some tough decisions along the way. Here's Suchi's conversation with Yvonne. My name's Yvonne Wassenaar, and I'm a board director and advisor for an exciting portfolio of technology companies, both in the public and the private sector. I'd love to go back to the beginning of your journey before you took on leadership positions and arrived in Silicon Valley. What drove you to study economics? Who encouraged you? Give us a little bit of a feel for how you got started. My early background really starts with my my parents who grew up in Holland during World War II. So like many immigrants, they came to the U.S. in search of opportunities that they didn't have at home. And fortunate for me, they landed in Sunnyvale, Santa Clara, well before it was Silicon Valley, but they immigrated here. And when I was four, they unfortunately got divorced. And unknowingly, my mom remarried to an abusive alcoholic. And so much of my childhood was deeply focused on school, which was a way for me to escape and feel safe. Uh, And I started working really young. I started cleaning houses at the age of 14. I worked at Sizzler Steak Seafood Salad um, as soon as I turned 16. And I actually graduated high school a year early. So most people thought graduating at 16 must have meant I was super smart. But for me, it was really a drive to go away somewhere else. The, The economics thing is kind of... Silly. In the sense, I had a driver's ed class, and there was a college and career project assignment. And I still remember the little yellow job portfolio I pulled out of the files, because this was way before the days of the internet. And this job looked interesting. It looked like I could pay my bills doing it. And that is how I started. But I was fortunate to have a calculus professor in college who was amazing. And he convinced me into taking a Pascal programming class. 
And that's really what launched my interest and understanding in software engineering and in technology more broadly. And so that's kind of the curvy path that I took that landed me coming out of college as a software engineer at Accenture. So first off, that sounded obviously very tough starting point, but amazing for you to go through those twists and turns and land up where you are. And sounds like your professor was a great influence for you. Now, you've worked as CEO of Airware and Puppet. Let's talk a little bit about your journey in those roles, right? Like, what gave you the confidence to take these on? And what are some of the things that you know, what may be surprising to you or people don't often tell you about being in a C-suite role? It's an excellent question. I appreciate you asking. And the reason for that is it's so easy to look at somebody like myself and their resume and think, wow, what a set of accomplishments. They must have had an amazing master plan. I don't know if I could ever do that. <laughs> and I'm here to say there was no master plan I never aspired to be a CEO. <laughs> I grew up in, in the 70s. There weren't a lot of female CEOs. I don't think I knew what a CEO was. And for me, I got fortunate that by surrounding myself with a really good set of people who challenged me and who pulled me in different directions, and by being open to different opportunities, I was given the, the ability to become a CEO. The short of a long story is I originally set out to do board work when I was an operating executive at VMware. And I decided I wanted to do that for two reasons. One, I, I thought my strategy consulting experience and my operating experience would make me well-suited for that type of job. But also, it occurred to me that there weren't very many diverse folks around those top leadership tables. And in technology, if you don't have diverse thinking and perspective going into some of the hard decisions around things like what can AI do or not do and so forth, we're not going to end up in the place we want to from a world perspective. And ultimately, a company that I was looking to join the board of ended up bringing me on as COO. And two weeks into the job, they came to me and said, we want you to be CEO. And then proceeded to tell them that that was crazy, uh, that I had kind of grown up a big company kid. This was a small startup. They were going to have to raise money. I'd never raised money. I had a thousand and one reasons why making me CEO was a really <laughs> bad idea. And what I really benefited from is John Chambers, who used to be the CEO and chairman of Cisco, was on the board and he had me come to his office, and we had a long two-hour chat. And at the end of it, he just looked at me and he said, here's the deal. You're more ready to be a CEO than you realize. And I'm going to be your wingman, and we're going to do this together. And I would say I am where I am because of John and so many other people in my career who have done things like that. And John was true to his word. I mean, it was a really tough job. The company had a lot of issues that needed to be sorted out, and he was with me every step of the way. And that makes a big difference. And I think it's why it's so important that we create these networks and that we give each other the confidence that you're not going to be alone because it is hard to be a CEO. Wow. 
That's such an amazing story and even so inspiring to also hear about not just John's offer to you, but his commitment and his follow through in being there for you and what a difference it made to your experience in the role and clearly your success in executing on that role as well. You do serve on a number of boards now post your CEO roles. Can you briefly introduce our listeners to what do you do as a member of the board? And then we'll talk a little bit about why you've decided to do these roles. You already alluded to that a little bit. It's interesting. When I first aspired to be a board director, I didn't really know what it meant. And so one thing I'm very thankful for is there was a women's organization for women leaders in Silicon Valley that offered a workshop on being a board director. And so the first thing I'd say in board work is if you're interested, get educated because there's a lot of things to know. But I'd boil down the two key things that you do in the following buckets. The first is a fair amount of the work is overseeing and governance of the strategic direction and performance of an organization. For public companies, that's oftentimes very highly regulated out of the uh, Security and Exchange Commissions here in the U.S. It's by other organizations in other countries. In private organizations, it's a little bit less on that. It's more on fundraising and so forth. I think the more nuanced role, at least for me, has been what I call bringing out the best in a CEO and their leadership team. Having been a CEO, your board at its best is a sounding board and mentors and sponsors and coaches and thought partners in how you navigate thousands of decisions that are important and ensure you have the right team. And the hardest job a board has is the decision to replace a CEO. And it's also the greatest power a board holds. So you really want to work hard to make the team that you have successful and bring out their best selves. And to me, what I've discovered in the six, seven years that I've been doing this work is to be effective one thing you need to do is to be able to, what I say, um, discern the signal from the noise. So to be able to take in a lot of information, a lot of different perspectives and figure out what really matters. The second is to be able to effectively influence when you don't have direct power and control. Boards don't make a lot of decisions. We make some, but really you're trying to help guide people in a certain direction. And so that's much more nuanced. So being comfortable and skilled at doing that. And I think the final thing is having an appreciation of your unique value proposition in the room. Some people think to get on a board, you just need to be smart and work hard. But the reality is, is boards are very carefully orchestrated groups of individuals who have complementary skills and experiences. So you want to be thoughtful in how you fit in that bigger dynamic to really bring out the best, not just of yourself in that room, but of the greater group. You've certainly mentioned through your career, you know, this intense focus on being able to be independent. And let's talk about how through the various parts of your career, both operating executive as well as a board member, how has this manifested in your career? My childhood, like most people's childhoods, 
really influenced a lot of my my personality and how I present myself in the world. And so for me, the independence was really driven by my desire to not be stuck like my mom in a in a unfortunate relationship because she didn't have the same um, financial freedoms that I aspired to. So as I mentioned initially, I threw myself into my studies to, to get that independence. And then when I graduated, I worked long hours, I pushed to achieve greater and greater outcomes. And, and all of that's great. <laughs> what I learned as I rose in the ranks is that it's there's a double-edged sword to that independence and that drive. And it really has to do with how you trust and interact with others. And what I found in retrospect for a meaningful amount of my career, I was an outstanding micromanager. And as anybody who's been micromanaged, that's not a fun spot to be in. (laughs) As one of my uh, exec coaches described me, I was quote unquote, an over-functioning executive. And what that meant is I would work 24-7 because I had an intense fear that if anybody in my organization failed, that was my failure. And if I failed, then I was going to not just be held back, but I might be let go and I could go down this really horrible path. And so I was really driven to make sure everybody was successful in my organization so that I would be successful. And what ends up happening is you are not helping yourself, you're holding yourself back because you're disempowering your team, you can't scale beyond your own abilities. And so I went through a fair amount of coaching and really collaborative work with my teammates um, and the people I worked for to improve. And I'd say one of the things that helped the most was switching my mindset and understanding that once you get to a certain level of leadership, you're not being held accountable for everything in your organization going perfectly. (laughs) You're being held accountable for the delivery of results and for having the right people in the right roles to deliver those results. And so your job isn't to solve the problems if the people on your team can't solve them. Your job is to either help them solve them or replace them. And that was a real unlock for me because it helped me recognize what my true job was. And as a CEO, you own everything and you own nothing. (laughs) And as a board member, you know, again, you don't directly make any decisions day by day. So learning how to create that clarity of what truly your job is and how to execute it is critically important. So let's talk a little bit more about your journey as you were moving through all of these phases and growth in your career you did find yourself in a situation where you were a single mom and you were working full time can you paint us a picture of that time in your life when i was 36 uh the love of my life my fiance actually ended up passing away of cancer And the type of cancer he had, uh, they initially thought was very treatable. And so we had been planning on having a family. We took precautions before he started chemo. And unfortunately, several months into the treatment, they found another type of bone marrow cancer and he passed away a couple months later. And so for me, I was on a path to be partner at Accenture. 
I was 36, so as my dad said, I was no spring chicken. <laughs> and I uh, spent a lot of time delivering and getting educated, but I made a, well, I made the biggest decision of my life, which was to try to have our children through in vitro fertilization. And I'm blessed. I, I have three children. So I did go on to have his children. My oldest is 18. I have twins that'll be turning 16. So it's really wonderful. But I will say, and anybody who's a parent or who's involved in helping raise young children, it takes a village. And my immediate family was not able to be very active outside of the first year with my oldest daughter. And so I was fortunate enough that I had enough income to hire a full-time nanny who became a loved member of the entire family, her and her whole family. They're from El Salvador. So I like to say Julie and I have co-parented my kids. <laughs> She's really special. But there were also the parents of my kids' best friends and the dads on the baseball team and everybody kind of pitching in to help you out. So for me, what I think is important and I want to reinforce for your listeners is I get a lot of people who ask me about whether or not they should have kids or when they should have kids and maybe they're going to slow their career down to have kids and everybody needs to make the right choice for them. But I do want to put forward that in my career, I actually had accelerated career growth after having my three kids as a single mom versus it slowing down. And a lot of that came from, again, an intense desire and <laughs> to, you know, be independent and provide for my kids. And there was nobody else to do that. So it wasn't a choice of, hey, Yvonne, why don't you stay home with the kids and I'll work? I used to joke my, my dog didn't pay the mortgage. So it definitely took a lot of burden off because there is a lot of pressure when you have particularly multiple kids, like, why don't you stay home with them? Or are you a bad mom? And I actually had a colleague ask me one time, he said, I'm, I'm struggling to understand how you're as good as me at work. And if you can be a good mother while you're doing that. And I just looked at him and I said, don't worry, you're pretty head. I got it. <laughs> It's really important to surround yourself with people who aren't just going to support you. The support's really important, but also people who will test your limiting beliefs. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you feel like sharing and that would be valuable for our listeners? The two things that I would call out as some additional tidbits, one is something I alluded to, take more risks in your career they're not as risky as you think. It's amazing to me when I look back at how terrified I was when I went from Accenture to VMware. But like somebody told me, what, like I couldn't go back and get rehired at that job? And I felt the same way when I went from VMware to New Relic. I was terrified. And again, somebody said, well, what, you can't get a job at a big corporation if the startup doesn't work? And at Airware, it was a financial disaster. I learned a ton and I did really good work, but we did not have a great financial outcome. And I felt like a complete failure. But at the end of the day, I built an amazing reputation for myself. And that's what got me the job at Puppet, which had a much happier ending. And so I would just say, lean into those risks because they're not as risky as you think. And then the other thing is network. 
I was not a good networker until I was in my late 30s. I'm now 54. I have an amazing network. But the big unlock for me was when I understood that networking was not an after hours weekend thing that as you rise in your career, it's part of your job. It helps you recruit better. It gets you better access to information. It gets you better access to customers, partners, all these different things. And so take the time to meet new people and to kindle relationships, even if you're really busy and you've got a family and all of that. You don't have to carve it out of family time. It can be part of your day job. And recognize that it's all about contributing into the network and then the network will come back and give to you. It's not about a tactical tit for tat of what is this person going to get me, but how can I be helpful to somebody else? And if you go with that spirit of giving, it's one, a lot more fun, but it's also a lot more fruitful in the long run. Of course, the name of our show is, you know, an opportunity for our guests to reflect at a time when they felt that they were in their element. Would love to have you look back at this actually amazing, amazing journey over so many decades and see what stands out to you. When did you feel that you were in your element? I sat with the the question for a while and the thing that resonated for me was really when I took on the CEO role at Puppet, which is an infrastructure automation company. It was about 100 million in revenue. And the reason I call that out is that's the first role I've ever accepted where I wasn't terrified, where I actually felt that I had the right set of experiences and the right network and the right comfort with myself and my own leadership style that I could lead authentically and powerfully to a great outcome where I wasn't terrified at what I had signed myself up for. was my conversation with Yvonne. Corinne, what are your takeaways from this conversation? God, where to start, right? It's like such a rich conversation, I think, from the bravery it takes to say, I've lost my lifelong partner and yet I am going to go forth and through IVF have three of his children and live my life in a work-life balance scenario that I'm satisfied with, even if it's not something everybody else likes, to I think the conversation she had uh, with John, the ex-CEO that she was talking to, who sort of invited himself in and said, look, you have what it takes to do this job more so than you can even imagine, more so than you realize, and I'm gonna be your wingman. Something a little bit frustrating about that is that like, okay, why is it over and over again this theme that we hear on the podcast that it takes the the man to, to give the sort of acknowledgement that like you are what it takes for her to acknowledge to herself, yes, I can do this job. That's a bit frustrating. Suchi, what stands out to you the most about the conversation you had with Yvonne? She, came across as feeling her own power and owning her destiny and controlling it and shaping it. And what I mean by that is there was just this unapologetic sense of this is who I am. I'm shaped by my experiences. I've made certain decisions and calls in the path I am going to pursue or the way that I'm going to approach work or approach life or approach family. And it might not meet 
society's expectations of what you know work-life balance should look like or what an ideal parent should do and that's okay because they're not your decisions they're mine so I think there was just so much power in asserting ownership exactly over who she is and at the same time manifesting it at work in how she exercises her leadership well that's all for today this has been in her element a podcast from bcg join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology thank you so much for listening